turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Since this is Memorial Day, I do want to take a moment to thank um, all of you who have served our country, served in our armed services. Um, Some of you have family members who are active duty, reserve, and uh, freedom is certainly not something that is free. And I think that's something we often take. I know I take for granted the fact that I can just step into this church anytime I want. But um, we're grateful for those of you who who have sacrificed, are sacrificing, and your family members as well. I just want to say that. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 13. Our study is, what's love got to do with it? This was the apropos question for the Corinthians. This is the question they needed to hear because... They were caught up in uh, tongues and prophecy and healing and all these incredible, miraculous gifts. But as they say in sports, um, offense will get you on the highlight reel, but defense wins championships. And uh, Paul is sort of saying, okay, look, yes, you have these, these amazing, incredible gifts. And we shouldn't make too little of them. They're real gifts. I shared my opinion that tongues is still a gift that I believe is... Um, available to believers today, given to some believers today, which is expressed in a private prayer language. But on the other hand, it's easy to make too much of gifts and forget about love, which often is painful and boring and thankless. So this week, we're going to look at verse 2 as Paul continues to dig in about what love is and what love is not. And I'm going to be reading all of chapter 13. This is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord God, we come into your presence this morning needing to hear your voice. Because we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And on a weekend, Lord, where we remember the sacrifice that so many men and women have made for our nation, for our freedom, 
we're reminded that the deepest freedom that the human heart needs is freedom from sin, freedom from captivity to darkness. Lord, you have accomplished that freedom through the work of Christ. That is the measure of your love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, as we come to the text this morning and as we consider this question of how do we measure our spiritual growth accurately? We pray, O God, that your spirit would illumine our hearts to see the glories of your truth, of your word, that you would make us people of love, people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, give us love in a world that needs it so badly and is so filled with, with hate and pain and brokenness. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? You alone are. So we look now to hear your voice, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, we're, we're zooming in this morning as we are taking this chapter one verse at a time. We're zooming in on verse two this morning, where Paul says this, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And we're going to consider these three questions. First of all, spiritual giants. The Corinthians sure thought they were spiritual giants. Um, secondly, the limitations of spiritual gifts. And thirdly, measuring spiritual growth the right way. First of all, spiritual giants. Um, if the Corinthians had a song that maybe they sang together when they were feeling really good about themselves, you know, I could see them singing, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. You guys all know that one. Remember that one? Ain't No Mountain High. I'll stop. Um, but, you know, Paul says, hey, if I just have enough faith, you can move mountains, can't you? And perhaps the Corinthians, with their obsession with the spectacular, with the glitzy, incredible gifts, would have said, yeah, if we just have enough faith, Maybe we can move mountains. So the first question of the text is this. Does Paul and does the Bible really mean that we can move mountains? Well, I think it's clear from the text that Paul is, he's exaggerating here and he's, he's exaggerating to make a point. If, if you read it in the Greek, he actually says this. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and there's actually the word all in front of the word faith too. And if I have all faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. You see, we know that Paul knows that we can't understand everything in this life. We can't have all uh, knowledge. He says it just later on in the chapter. He says, now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So Paul is not saying that we can have complete and total knowledge in this life or to fully understand mysteries or to move mountains. But he is using hyperbole to make a point. He's saying even if you could move mountains with faith, and faith, of course, can accomplish amazing things, but even if you could move mountains with faith, and even if you could understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all prophecies without love, you are nothing. You are nothing. You know, I think this gift, particularly the gift of prophecy, is widely misunderstood today. So we're going to spend a moment looking at prophecy, looking at knowledge, and looking at faith and saying, what are these spiritual gifts? How can we understand them? First of all, prophecy. This gift of prophecy, it's widely misunderstood today. Um, and I would say this, prophecy is more 
foretelling or forthtelling, excuse me, than foretelling. In other words, it's more about speaking truth than about predicting the future, about getting your horoscope. Now, there's a change that happens in Scripture between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets are God's authoritative spokespeople. When a prophet speaks, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Elijah, when the prophet speaks, they're speaking as the voice of God in the Old Testament. And that's why my seminary professors used to say to us, they say, guys, if there's one job that you don't want in the Bible, it's to be an Old Testament prophet. Because they're always delivering bad news, right? The prophets aren't saying, guess what? You just want an all-inclusive to Hawaii, Israel. Congratulations. The prophets go to the nation of Israel over and over again, and they say, listen, nation, you, you have wandered from your first love. You have left the Lord. And if you do not repent, judgment is coming. Now, how would you like that as your job? Okay, you, you, hopefully they had a very fast camel that they could just jump on in that moment. Because, and, and, and in all seriousness, the prophets suffered. It was a tough job. Read about Jeremiah. Read about the Old Testament prophets. They were often the bearers of bad news that the people needed to hear. They needed to hear that judgment was coming because of their sin. But in the New Testament, there's a change. You see, God's authoritative spokespersons in the New Testament are the apostles, those who write scripture. And yet we still see this gift of prophecy mentioned right here in this chapter and elsewhere in the New Testament. So what is prophecy? How is it different in the Old Testament from the New Testament? Well, this is what scriptures make clear. In the New Testament, the church is called to test prophecy. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. If you have a Bible, just look in the next chapter. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. You would never read that in the Old Testament, okay? You wouldn't read in the Old Testament when Isaiah prophesies, go ahead and check it and decide if you want to hear it. In the Old Testament, they spoke the truth of, of God and kings would, you know, quiver because a prophet was delivering the word of the Lord. And the New Testament is different. And the New Testament says, listen to prophecy, but consider if it's in accord with sound doctrine. Prophecy is under apostolic teaching and authority. Um, let me give a definition of prophecy that I think is helpful for us today. Prophecy is when a believer, prompted by the Holy Spirit, speaks truth to another person. Okay? It's when a believer, prompted by the Holy Spirit, speaks truth to another person. In other words, what I think the New Testament is saying by prophecy is when God lays something on your heart to speak to another person, and it's his truth, but it says, it doesn't say you just take it as, uh, you know, as gospel, okay? It doesn't say that we get to go around to each other and say, jump, how high, okay? You know, and, and that we just sort of are able to say, well, God told me to do this, so, um, you know, we need to go buy a boat today, and that's, why, that's what God told me. Um, no, it says weigh everything, determine if it's in accord with Scripture. Here's two Scriptures to consider with prophecy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good. Paul is assuming that his hearers are hearing prophecies. But instead of saying just accept them as the authoritative word of God, he says, test them all. In other words, actually weigh them by the word of God and hold on to that which is good. Paul, later speaking to his apprentice Timothy, says this, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you 
guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In other words, church, this is the message for us. Prophecy, according to the Bible, is still operative today, but it's not what we read in the Old Testament. And prophecy, if we, if we really want to use this very broad definition, it's simply speaking truth to another person as the Holy Spirit leads. Now, this, the Bible calls us that we're called to test that, okay? So if, if a brother comes to me and says, Josh, I want to speak truth to you. Uh, I wanna, God's laid this on my heart. I want to share something with you. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be a rebuke. It could be an encouragement. It could be a challenge. I'm called then to say, okay, what you just told me, I'm now going to go to the scriptures and see if that fits with the scriptures. You know, if, if we take this definition of prophecy, often t- what we'll realize is how expansive this gift can be used in the life of the church. Preaching, small groups, counseling, a meal with a friend. Um, really, the key is, do we have good enough relationships with each other where we're willing to, to step out and say, I, wa- I want to say something to you. God just put this on my heart. I, I think it's from him. And I, I just want to maybe challenge you about this area of, of your life that I've seen. Or I want to encourage you because I think you have a lot to give the church. And, and I'm not sure that you're giving it right now. Or I just want to say you're a blessing to me or something like that. But we're called to weigh these things according to scripture. Every preacher has a story like this. And I, I've, this has happened to me before. Um, someone will come up to you after a sermon and say, uh, you know, pastor, you know, have you been going through my drawer? Did you find my journal or my diary or something, you know, or have you been, have you been recording my phone conversations, you know? Um, and, and, you know, the pastor says, I don't know what you're talking about. Why would you say that? And the person says, because something you said in your sermon, it's like, it's like it was directly, it was like you were reading my journals and God just spoke directly into my life and a, and, and a preacher what he should say is, glory be to God, because that was from the Lord, and God led me to say that in that moment, and I praise him that it touched your life. And of course, the pulpit is not the only place, nor should it be the only place where we speak truth to each other. Relationships, small groups, counseling, all different settings, we're called to speak truth, and when we hear it, we're called to test it. Oftentimes, if you're married, oftentimes you know that the voice God uses in your life is your spouse, right? Oftentimes, the prophet is your spouse, and, you, you know, when, you're, and when your spouse says something to him, you want to treat him like an Old Testament prophet, right? You want to you you say, oh, it hurts, it hurts. But is it not true? Is so often our spouse not the one that challenges us to say, look at this sin in your life. Look at this habit you have. Look at this way you talk to your children. Look at this way you approach your work. Look at how worldly this view of, of, of maybe money is or your career or something like that. And at first, we, we want to um, you know, run them out of town like the Old Testament prophets. And then we think about it. We say, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that's the voice of God. And whether you're married or not, we're called to have people like that in our lives. Family members, friends, hopefully people from Grace Redeemer Church who will speak truth to us and that we will know our Bibles well enough that when they speak truth to us, we'll be able to say, yes, um, that's a biblical thing to say to me. I needed to hear that. Or, whoa, that's coming out of left field there. Um, I'm not sure that fits with Scripture. For example, if someone were to say, well, every Christian is supposed to have tongues, is supposed to speak in the gift of tongues. It's clear that's not in the Scripture. So you'd say, no, that doesn't fit with the Bible. Two other gifts. 
two other gifts Paul mentions. One is he mentions the gift of knowledge. Another is he mentions the gift of faith. Knowledge is, the, is something all Christians should have, but some Christians seem to really be gifted to understand the truths of the faith. Second Peter, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. He always ends with love knowledge. I was with a brother recently, and um, pastors are all dorks. I'll just put it out there. Um, so we were talking about books, all right. Um, I said, hey, let's, how many books do you have? Something, I forget what I said, but, you know, something very dorky, <laughs> and the person told me, and um, what convicted me was the person said, look, I, I have this many books, but I try, to not, I try to not go over this many books too much, and I thought, oh, Why? And the person said to me, um, well, I try to give books away. Especially after I read a book, I try to give it away. And I thought, that's good for you. I'm not going to follow that. Um, no, but I was convicted. I was convicted because what the person was, tell, was saying, and there's nothing wrong with having a good library. I hope, I hope you guys understand that's not what I'm saying. But the point was the gift of knowledge. What's the point? Are we, are we learning just to, so we know more? Or are we learning to give it away to others? right? That's why we want to learn more about the faith so we can give it away to others. Knowledge is never an end of itself. Knowledge, even about God, first of all, we want to learn more about God so we know God better. So our own relationship with the Lord is enriched. And then secondly, we want to give that knowledge away to others. Giving away a book is just one way we can do that. Faith. When uh, James says this, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. We're called to have faith. We're called to exercise faith and to trust God in various areas of our lives. Now, those are three spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in these verses. But all, what we need to know this, all spiritual gifts can be abused, misused, or misunderstood. Every spiritual gift. So there's a limitation to spiritual gifts. For example, with prophecy. You know, it's possible, and sadly this does happen in the church, it's possible for someone to say, God told me X, and then expect sort of everyone else to just get in line. And um, church leaders can do this and say, God just told me this, and everybody else needs to agree. And uh, there can be an abuse, abuse of power, abuse of, of not trusting the leadership that God has established in a church where there are healthy checks and balances, and, and, and there are people coming together as elders to decide. Prophecy can be abused. Not the gift of knowledge can be abused. Um, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, pastor, does that mean that I shouldn't want knowledge? No, clearly not, because there's other parts of the Bible that say grow in your knowledge. But rather, what Paul is highlighting in 1 Corinthians 8 is, it's possible to have knowledge, but you're not godly. This, another thing they used to tell us in seminary is, be careful that you don't love theology just for theology. And it's possible to, to, to be able to get uh, you know, 100% on the hardest doctrine quiz ever and be a nightmare to live with. It's possible because a person simply loves knowledge but doesn't love God and doesn't love people. So we have to be careful with the knowledge that we have. And I think, um, a- again, if we always think about the spiritual gifts as how can I give it away, then we're guarded from a knowledge that puffs us up. 
Lastly, faith. Who, who, who's heard this before? If you just had more faith, you would get this. You'd get the new job, or you'd get a spouse, or you'd get a better marriage, or you'd get health, riches. This is the name and claimant theology. Sadly, it's, it's uh, all over the world right now. The gift of faith can be abused. You know, God doesn't always promise to heal us. And probably the most poignant example of that is the Apostle Paul himself, the man who wrote the chapter we're reading, the guy who said, I speak in tongues more than all of you, the guy who would, would be able to heal people when he touched them. People would come to him and be healed. Do you know Paul didn't receive healing himself? He received a thorn in the flesh, and he says, I prayed three times that God would take it away, and God didn't take it away. And God said, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness. Even the apostle Paul himself was not healed. Sometimes in God's wisdom, he wants to heal us. Sometimes he chooses to have us deal with an affliction. And whether the Lord gives or whether the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We're called to have faith, but having faith doesn't mean a guaranteed outcome of health or wealth or prosperity. Well, those are the limitations of, of spiritual gifts. But what we need to, well, so what we need to do is, as we think about the spiritual gifts, as we think about ourselves, we need to say, okay, how do I measure my growth in Christ the right way? Maybe you say, Pastor, I don't even know how to measure my growth in Christ. How do I measure whether or not I'm growing in Christ. Because for the Corinthians, Paul had a message. He said, you know, you think you are spiritual giants. You think you are spiritual giants, but you're really spiritual ants in a way. Um, And he says, a person that has these spiritual gifts, uh, but who lacks love, is nothing. This is the question. All of us periodically, we, and this is a healthy practice, and I think everybody does it, we all periodically take stock of our lives, right? We, periodically, we, we, we take a moment and we say, um, how am I doing? How am I doing in my career? How am I, how am I doing health-wise? How's my marriage if I'm married? How are my kids? Are my kids developing? Are they growing? How is my investment portfolio doing? We periodically ask questions like this. They're not, they're not bad questions necessarily to ask these things, to periodically say, how am I doing? How am I doing in this area of life? How am I doing in this area of life? But the key question that we need to be asking is, am I growing in Christ? And how do I even determine whether or not I'm growing in Christ? How would I even know that? In April of 2007, I was living in, Betts and I were living in Augusta, Georgia. And in April of that year, I was um, on the golf course of Augusta National uh, Golf Course. Uh, I don't know if any of you are golf fans, but that's the Holy of Holies. If you're a golf fan, right, that's like the Mecca. You have to make your trek there if, if you can. Um, and uh, it's, it's the most prestigious golf course in the whole world, probably. And uh, I was selling hats, believe it or not. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was a college graduate, but I wanted to get in there. I wanted to experience the tournament, so I took a part-time job that week selling hats. The whole city of Augusta shuts down that week. All the kids are on spring break, and everybody goes on vacation or rents their home out or whatever, so uh, Betts was gracious enough to let me sell hats for a week at Augusta National. That's what I did. And let me tell you, people know how to buy hats at Augusta National, okay? I'm, people would be like, I'll take 20 of those and 35 of those. 
And um, the bills were crazy in the golf shop. I worked in the golf shop for a week. Um, but periodically, you know, I would, we would get breaks and I would walk the course and I would go watch a golfer for a hole here or there. And there's two ways to watch a golf tournament, okay? Um, you, you know, okay, here's the two ways to watch a golf tournament. One is you can station yourself at one hole and watch all the different golfers come through that one hole. So, you, so you, you get to experience all the different golfers, but you experience one, just one hole of the course. The other way is to follow a golfer, your favorite guy, around the course. Now, let me tell you something. In 2007, Tiger Woods was a god, okay? Tiger Woods had an army following him. He could go and go buy a pack of gum, and he had a mob of 500 people behind him following him everywhere on the course. Phil Mickelson was a, a little less so. But in, in, tw- in 2007, Tiger Woods was, he was at the height of his power. He was at the apex of his power, all right? It wasn't a question of when will Tiger Woods break Jack Nicholas's record of 18 majors. It was simply a question, or, or if, it was simply a question of when. Everybody knew it was going to happen. He, he had transcended golf. He was making over $100 million a year in endorsements. He was unstoppable. He was all over TV. Uh, I mean, Tiger Woods was just it. And I remember watching him, watching the, the mob of fans follow him everywhere. Um, before the Masters Golf Tournament of this year, this was the cover of Sports Illustrated. Truman, if you could get that. Um, what happened? There's a picture of Tiger back in his heyday. What happened? It remains the most vexing question in sports. You see, what was really going on with Tiger Woods is that outwardly, everything in his life looked perfect. All right, beyond perfect by worldly standards. The guy was just on top of the whole universe. Money, uh, married to a model, you know, unstoppable golf machine. But yet inwardly, his life was completely falling apart. His dad had died, uh, or his dad died, um, I forget when it was, maybe 2008. And um, Tiger had long been in a tailspin, and that sort of was the final trigger. It began a, uh, or it intensified behaviors in his life like adultery, which later came out, um, lots of infidelities. Other interesting things have come out about Tiger too, though, like, like the fact that he was training with the Navy SEALs. Um, when, when Tiger was, even when he was winning golf tournaments, it's like it wasn't enough for him. So he decided, it's like, I, it's like, I have to find a new mountain to climb. So he would sneak off, and in between golf tournaments, he would train with the Navy SEALs. And his, his, uh, you know, his agent and other people were saying, Tiger, what are you doing? Why are you, what are you doing going training with the Navy SEALs? But he didn't care. He wanted to do it anyway. And, uh, of course, we know that in 2009... Everything came undone. He lost his marriage. He lost his family. Um, Tiger's body is basically now completely uh, decimated, uh, although he's trying to make a comeback right now. He's had tons of back surgeries, tons of knee surgeries. And um, interestingly, a lot of these injuries that he suffered are not even from golf. It's from doing things like training with the Navy SEALs, which I can't imagine doing. Um, He could actually keep up pretty well because the guy was such an athletic um, specimen. From the outside, everything looked good, didn't it? Everything looked good. From sort of external measurements, everything in Tiger's life was, uh, was going great. 
But if you look at other measurements that were really going on, Tiger was headed for a cliff. And I don't know anything about where this man stands with God or what he believes or anything like that. But I do know that his life completely came undone. And sadly, I mean, this is the cost of celebrity. It came undone in front of the entire world. The, you know, it's easy as we, as we look at this question, am I growing in Christ? We can look at things like, um, how's my church attendance doing? How's my involvement doing? And those are good things. I'm not saying those are bad measurements. But this is the question that we should really ask ourselves about am I growing in Christ? The key measurement, the key diagnostic question is, am I growing in love? Love for God and love for others. Uh, as, as I look back on my life over the past year, do I love God a little bit more? Does my heart desire the things of God a little more than it did a year ago? As I think about the coworker or the neighbor that doesn't know Jesus and I know their life is a mess, am I a little bit more burdened to take this good news to them because I know the good news? I have it. And of course, there's all kinds of social reasons that we don't share Christ with people. It's, it's, it's not appropriate. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, um, it's not what you're supposed to do. I get all that. But are we more burdened? Is our love for Jesus stronger? Our love for God stronger so that the things that God loves, and what, what, ask yourself, what does God love? Well, God loves sinners. We know that. He died to save them. God loves justice, we know that. God loves righteousness, we know that. God loves peace, we know that. And so increasingly, those things that God loves become the things that we love. Not perfectly, of course, but in increasing measure. The thing we need to do, church, is look at our desires. Look at your desires. The desires are the index of the heart. Do all of us, myself included, do, do we desire holiness more? Do we desire to be like Jesus a little bit more in our lives? I want to skip ahead to finally to this question. Um, so how do we grow in Christ? And I'm going to skip the quote from uh, Colossians. How do, we do, how do we grow in Christ? Well, the answer is that above all else, we need to seek the Lord first. You know, we, we have all these different areas of our lives, okay, right? We have our parenting, we have our, our work career, we have our um, spiritual gifts, we have our body image. In other words, how do, we, how do we view our body and how do we treat our body and what's our relationship like to our body and, and uh, how we think we look? We have evangelism. We have all these different, um, and I intentionally mixed up kind of churchy categories here with regular everyday life categories here on purpose because we have all these different categories of our life that we may that we that we uh you know we can evaluate but what god says to us is seek me first the biggest need that we have is god it's it's not um yes we want to grow as parents yes we want to grow in our prayer lives yes we want to grow in our evangelism yes we want to have good the right attitude toward our our career and our body and our spiritual gifts but the thing we need the most is God. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. It's not that the other things aren't important. But our greatest need, if we want to be people of love, who grow in love, our greatest need is God himself. And we find God in the gospel. We find him through 
uh, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing that we need the most is to be filled up with the love of God. Because when we're filled up with the love of God, that love overflows and it inevitably will affect every other part of our lives, our parenting, our prayer lives, our body image, our spiritual gifts, evangelism, our careers. It will overflow. Our greatest need is God. Things like money, food, sex, laughter, rich times with friends or family members, the beauty of a smile on a child's face. These things are are things that bring great happiness to our lives, joy to our lives. But they're ultimately secondary to the joy that you and I were designed to have in God. That's our ultimate source of joy. That's the fountain of joy through which all the other joys in our lives come from. The thing we need the most. How do we grow? How do I grow in my love? Pastor, I want to grow. How do I grow in my walk with Jesus? Well, seek first the Lord. Seek first the Lord. Seek first to be overcome with His love And out of that will overflow love into every other part of our lives. I want to end with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Um, We all want to be happy. It's not a bad thing to want to be happy, necessarily, Um, depending on how we're using that word. But G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, happiness is not only a hope. Okay, listen to this quote. Happiness is not only a, a hope but also in some strange manner, it's a memory. We are all kings in exile. This is what Chesterton is saying. He's saying, look, you were made to be happy. First of all, you're made to be happy in God. And all of us have some sense that that's what we were made for. We, we, we don't know how to find it. So we look in every other place that we can. We look in our career. We look in our finances. We look in our relationships. We look in our physical appearance. And we say, I want, I want happiness. Chesterton says, we have a memory. And it's more than a hope. It's, it's in other words, when God made us, we were in that perfect relationship with him before our sin separated us. And we're in exile. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the message of reconciliation which te- takes exiled kings and queens to the ultimate king of kings, the Lord, puts us back in relationship with him. When we're in relationship with him, then we will truly grow in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, O oh God, that we would love you above all else. And that your love would overflow to us, Lord. We thank you that you've given so many good gifts, but we know that apart from love, we are nothing. So make us people who love. Make us people who are, first of all, filled with your love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.